in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. And <clears throat> over the coming weeks and months, um, we'll be going through the book of Colossians. Um, I don't know exactly how long we'll be in the book. We'll, we'll see. Um, but it'll be quite some time. So for this morning, we're going to do an introduction to this, this letter which uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Colossae and Laodicea and Her- Herapolis. Um, and I'm going to read, read it to you. Uh, and you can follow along. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated, and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon. Or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you about, all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts 
And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Now, uh, there's a few reasons why I read the whole book of Philippians to you. Um, first, to you know, give you an overview of the, the book by reading it at once, and, and second, to show you how short it is, how, how quickly it can be read. It, it took me probably about 10 minutes to read that whole book. Um, <clears throat> and also that um, this is a letter. Um, we don't know how um, the original autograph was, how big the font was. Chances are it, it could have been, you know, the size of a sheet of paper rolled up. It was a letter, and as Paul said, it was meant to be read all at once to the whole church, and that's how many of his epistles were written. Um, now, that's not going to be my practice for the longer <laughs> gospels. I'm not going to read a whole gospel, but you know, it was short enough that I could read it for an introduction, and you saw how short it was. Um, also, to show you that um, you have no excuse for regular daily Bible reading. Um, you can read a whole book, a short epistle in 10 minutes. Um, but, you know, we know that when we read the Bible, it's good to pause, to meditate, to, to make observations, to see how, um, to consider how um, the meaning and the, the interpretation and the applications of the Word of God. Um, but, you know, you can read big portions of, of Scripture in one sitting, and, and we should. And, and um, too often, um, you know, kind of in, a, in our conservative Christian camp, um, you know, many of you, you're, you're familiar with expository preaching, verse-by-verse uh, -verse pe preaching. And um, the, the downside to verse-by-verse -verse preaching is sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes we get too focused on that one little verse and we mix, miss the whole context. That there's a larger context of the book. There's a larger context of, of what's going on in, in, in the, the life of the, the writer of that book and the, the, the recipients of that book, um, who, who it would be written to. So important when we read our Bibles to context.
um, and to, to not take a verse out of context. Um, but as I was studying um, the, the book of Colossians um, in preparation for this series and, and for this message, um, I, I came across uh, I was looking at the different themes that are represented, the, the, the teachings, the commands, everything that is in this, this letter. And there, there's great depth in this letter. Um, Paul talks about so many things. And in reading it, I saw seven reasons why we should study this letter. Seven reasons that popped out to me. And for certain, there's more reasons. There's definitely more reasons, but I saw seven. And first and foremost, first and foremost, we study the book of Colossians because it's Scripture. I mean, this, this is, these are the very words of God. And, and, and sometimes we lose sight of that. We, we, we can become so familiar with our Bible, and, and we understand, we know it's the word of God, we know it's scripture, but just the greatness of that, that, that our creator spoke to us. Not only has he spoken the whole universe into creation, by his command. But he has, he has not left us in the dark to stumble about trying to figure out life on our own. But he has spoken to us through his prophets and apostles. And now, now, yeah, yes, these are Paul's words, but these are also the words of the Holy Spirit. These are the very words of God. And, and, and there's, there's weightiness to that. There's no other book like this in the world. And that is, in reading the Bible, you gain almost a defense and an apologetic for the Bible. Because as you see the interconnectedness and the consistency of the whole Scripture, of the whole Bible, you're forced to say, man cannot write this. Surely, Men have written this, but the whole message from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, and, and even in this small letter of Colossians, this is, th- these are the very words of God. And, and they demand us to listen and to heed them and to memorize them and to meditate upon them and to, to understand them, to apply them, and, and even to proclaim them to others. Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And most of us who have gone through a discipleship program, that was a memory verse, and, and, and that should be a key memory verse in and we should memorize that and meditate upon that and understand that, that all Scripture, it's the very breath of God spoken through his prophets and apostles. It's, it's kept by the Holy Spirit. And, and yes, um, the, the, how we got the English Bible was through multitudes of, of manuscripts and, and copies but, and, and 
thousands upon thousands of copies and, and many, um, many uh, skeptics and critics of the Bible will say, well, yeah, that's just man's words, copies after copies and copies, and, and how can you be sure? Well, if you studied those copies, if you've studied those manuscripts, if you've studied the, the Word of God and how, how we have the Bible, you would know, you would see the consistency and how the Holy Spirit has preserved His Word through all those thousands of manuscripts over thousands of years. He has preserved His Word, and His Word is consistent. Yes, there, there, there may be spelling or grammar errors through the many manuscripts and the translations, but the meaning has not changed one bit. The Holy Spirit has preserved His words, and these words are profitable for us. They are profitable for our lives to know the meaning of life, to know how we should live our lives, to know how we should conduct ourselves as Christians, as, as people of God, as believers who have been redeemed by God. And it's not only profitable for us, it is sufficient. Sufficient. And, and this is something probably over the past century or so that in Christianity has, has um, been questioned. The sufficiency of Scripture to address every area of our lives. And, and with the, the advent of psychology and, and secular counseling, um, which has found its way into the church, Church, um, many um, churches and, and, and unfaithful ministers have, have unwittingly been, been deceived by psychology, which does say some true things, but it's not entirely true. It's all based on man's observations. And so many Churches and many Christians over the past century or so have, have outsourced people, have referred people to the world and to um, secular psychology and therapists to address the issues and the problems of life. But their counsel is not sufficient. Only Scripture is sufficient. Only the words of God can sufficiently address our issues and our problems and the meaning of life and, and can um, get us back on the right path to live a life in concert, in accord with what we were designed for. As uh, Ephesians 4 says, uh, the, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword and able to... Um, discern those errors, a a able to search the heart, a a able to expose us for who we really are. So we, we study, we're studying this letter first and fo foremost because of Scripture. A and this is what the believers in Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis needed. This is what they needed. They, they didn't need um, man's wisdom. 
They, they, they didn't need a philosopher or an orator or a, a scholar. They had, they had plenty of those in the Greco-Roman world. They had plenty of teachers um, peddling their worldly wisdom, which for the most part sounded good. And, and may have even had some true things in it, some practical wisdom. But it wasn't sufficient to address their problems. It wasn't sufficient to address the errors in the church at Colossae. It wasn't sufficient to guide them. They needed a transcendent, authoritative, efficacious, and the voracious word of God. And this is what Paul wrote to them. So we, we study this letter because it is scripture, first and foremost. And, and second, because it is written to believers who were under assault. They were under assault by so many things. The, the, the Colossians struggled with error. They, they, they struggled with error from Greek mythology and, and the philosophies of this world. Um, many rhetoricians and, and speakers and philosophers would come to them and, and, and would speak things to them. But Paul writes here in Colossians 2.9, not 2.9, 2.8 rather, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, it, it wasn't just Greek mythology and, and philosophies that were coming and going through Colossae and Herodotus and Laodicea and, and the whole Greco-Roman world at that time. But, but there was a growing um, heresy called Gnosticism. And, and the last time I preached here, I, I spoke a little bit about Gnosticism, and, and some of you um, may know a little bit about that. And uh, if you have a good study Bible, it may um, tell you something about Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, that there is this knowledge, this special knowledge. And it, it's interesting, almost every heretical movement almost... Every apostate um, religion or sect starts with this. You know, everybody is teaching you, you know, these other things, and you've heard this tradition, you've heard the Bible, but, but I got this to tell you. I got this, this secret knowledge or this secret prophecy or, or, or there's something new. And that's not really not new at all. That's, that's Satan's tricks from the beginning. Um, to, to get you away from the Word of God. But, but Gnosticism was this special knowledge that some teachers thought they knew, that there was this hierarchy of, of demigods and from, from maybe one true God, and, and, and that, that um, Jesus was one of these. He, he wasn't the one true God. And, and also that matter in the physical world was, was evil, inherently evil, and, and the spiritual world was inherently good and, and, and our goal in life is to free ourselves from um, the physical and, and, and the worldly things and, and to focus on spiritual things and, and it was all this secret knowledge. And Paul writes this letter to address that heresy amongst others. But there's, there's other errors that were going around in the Colossian church. Um, Judaizers and ascetics, um, trying to, um, people with a Jewish background believers, um, 
trying to uh, deceive the Colossians into going back to Old Testament law, into practicing customs and, and feasts and festivals and uh, certain uh, Jewish lifestyle, um, not only for their personal holiness, but to be accepted by God. And this was also an error. Uh, and, and it's interesting because <clears throat> legalism and asceticism, it has an appeal to us. It has an appeal to all of us. That, that, that if we could just create a checklist of, of practices, that if we just do those practices and we order our life aright, then, then, then we will be on the right path. Then, then, then we will, it, it's almost like a, a, a self-help. Um, that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And, and, and the truth of the matter is it, it's not entirely wrong. We do need self-discipline. There is a sense that we do need to um, kind of cut ourselves off from certain practices, and, and we do need to um, order our lives aright, and we need to be disciplined. But that's not going to commend us to God. And, and that's where the subtle error is. So Paul's writing this letter to these believers in Colossae and Laodicea and Herapolis that are, are under assault by all these errors. And it benefits us because... We struggle with error today. We, we should study this book because of our struggle with error today. I mean, there, there's established false religions all around us. And uh, in, in our media and in uh, those um, established heresies like the Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam and, and Hinduism and Buddhism and, and all sorts of isms. I mean, take your pick. These long-established false religions. Um, but then there's also this uh, mysticism, this, this spirituality in, in, in our culture. And it's interesting. When, when, when I moved out to um, California, to L.A., to um, go to seminary, I, I mean... The, the thought in my mind and the thought in a lot of people's minds about um, California and L.A. is that it's, it's godless, that it's irreligious, that um, there, there's people that, um, a lot of unbelievers, and, and that is true. But it's not unspiritual at all. It's very spiritual. In fact, most of our culture, even, even atheists are, are to be spiritual though they wouldn't admit it. Um, there is a spirituality amongst unbelievers um, in our and, and it's, it's, in our, it's in our media. There, there's a pop culture, and it's somewhat a mixture of all these ideas from false religions and, and, and worldly wisdom and, and uh, just man's own thinking. We see it in our movies. We see it in Star Wars. We see it in the pantheon of Marvel. I mean, you think of Greek mythology and all those gods, and they're just they're repackaged in our comic books, in those movies. And 
yes, you can watch those movies uh, with discernment, um, but know that there is a spirituality in that. Um, we, we struggle with a lot of the same error that the Colossians did. Uh, but w- one of the key struggles with error, one of the key forms of error we struggle with today is postmodernism. Postmodernism, the, the thought that there's no absolutes, there's no moral absolutes, there's no um, absolute truth. Um, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth. It's totally subjective. Um, No standards, no morals, but yet there is a sense of morality, but it's my morality. And my morality is, is my morality, and your morality is your morality, and, and, and whatever works for you works for you, and whatever works for me works for me, and, and who are you to judge my morality, and, and I can't judge your morality. Um, no standards. And, and we, we see this in, in, in American evangelicalism in our man-centered approaches to worship, to how we do church. Um, We see it in the social justice movement. All over. There's the the key underlying um, issue with social justice and wokeness is epistemology. That word, the, the basis for knowledge. How do you know what you know? What standard are you appealing to? What's your moral standard? What's your absolute standard of righteousness, of reality? How do you know what you know? And in the social justice movement, it's all man-centered. It's subjective. It's like shifting sand. There's no absolute. There's no standard. We see that in transgenderism, that I can be who I want to be. I can change my own reality. It's really, it's really adults, and now it's going back to children, but it's really adults playing fantasy and dress-up because they can't cope with reality as it is. They can't accept the world as God has created it. They can't accept how God has created them, so they want to live according to their own thinking, according to their own knowledge. And this isn't that much different than what the Colossians were struggling with. And the answer to the Colossians' struggles with error is the same answer to our struggles with error, which is why Paul wrote this letter to them and why he wrote what he did in it. We study this letter because, first and foremost, because it's Scripture. Second, because... It's written to believers under assault. And third, because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel. This is the answer to the Colossians' struggles with error. And it's the answers our struggles with error. The, the, the hope of the gospel. The, the, the hope that we have in redemption. In the beginning... Uh, of this letter, he says in chapter 1, verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope 
laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel gives us hope. It gives us hope for this world. It gives us hope for lives, for, for our lives. It, it gives us the hope of heaven, the hope of redemption, the hope of deliverance from the, the issues and, and, and the, the fears and the concerns and the, even the horrors of this world. He, he calls it in verse 5 the word of truth. There's all these ideologies swimming about and these, these concepts and opinions in our world and in the Colossians world about life and about how you should live and, and what is best for you and, and, and what the world really is. But there's no truth. There's no substance to that. There's no absolutes. There's nothing sure. And because there's nothing sure from man-centered religion and opinions and philosophies, there's no hope. But there's hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because in the gospel, we see the world as it really is. That the world is broken. That it is fallen. That we ourselves are broken and fallen. That our relationships aren't what they should be. They're corrupted by sin. That the, the world and human government isn't what it should be. It's corrupted by sin. That, that even the natural order isn't what it should be. It's corrupted by sin. But God sent His own Son to save sinners. And, and to not only save sinners such as us, but to redeem this world from sin. That, that He would not only redeem us, but that He would return one day to redeem the creation. And this is the hope that Paul proclaims to them. That hope that... that is that steadfast anchor of the soul, as the writer of the Hebrews writes, that will help them to endure the, the errors and the heresies and even the persecutions that they would face. And so, we study this letter because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel. It proclaims the hope of the gospel. It, it proclaims the the. Pro- of the gospel in, in chapter 1 verses 6 to 8 Paul says it has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras our beloved fellow servant he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit And you see how this gospel, it went to Paul. Paul brought it to the known world at that time, brought it to Epaphras at some point, and Epaphras brought it to the Colossians. And it's bearing fruit. And this is how the gospel goes out. It goes from one person to the next, to the next, to the next, and it bears fruit. And it bears fruit not only in that it is the power of salvation unto those who hear it and believe it, but it bears fruit in changed lives. As someone has, has written before and has said before, show me your redeemed life and I will believe that there is a redeemer. And so we, we see that 
the propagation of the gospel of this whole level. And, and we see the fruits of the gospel. Verses 8 to 8 and on, as and has made known to us your love in the spirit, that, that the gospel produced love in the spirit that was um, that has indwelled them. And he goes on, he says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul does not write this letter as so much as a correction um, that, yes, there was errors in, in that area and in the church, but, it, but it, it, it was almost as a warning, as a preventative, as um, a vaccination against the, the heresies that were going around them to strengthen them because they were bearing fruit. There was the fruits of the gospel could be seen. And so we, we study this letter because it's scripture, because it's written to believers under assault, because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel, and third, or fourth rather, because it exalts the glories of Jesus Christ, which is really at the heart of the gospel, at the very heart and soul of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. This letter exalts the glories of Jesus Christ. His deity and humanity, his authority and supremacy, his eternality and immutability, his atonement and his sufficiency. I mean, we, we see his, his deity from the be, beginning here in, in, in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Just those few verses destroy the, the error of Gnosticism. That Jesus wasn't just a demigod. He wasn't a, a, a higher form of creation. He wasn't an angel. He wasn't just a spirit or just a, an earthly teacher, <coughs> a good teacher. No, he was very God. He was God in the flesh. And this term, the firstborn of all creation, yes, it is used by um, the anti-Trinitarian cults of the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, to, to say that Jesus is a created being? No, no, it, it, it's saying that, that he is high. It, it, it's talking that the firstborn has all the um, benefits of, um, of a son, uh, uh, from the father. It, it has, he has all the authority from the father given to him. He is preeminent. He is, he is first in order. And, and he created all things. If he created all things, he is before all things. He is the creator. He is very God. But he took on human flesh. He took on human flesh to be a, a sacrifice for us. 
to bear our sins in his body. He had to have a body to bear our own sins because man sinned, then, then man must pay the, the debt of sin. So he, he took on human flesh to be an atonement for us, but he also took on human flesh to be the premier man, to be what Adam could not be, to be the, the, the greatest man there ever was, to be um, the king of Israel, the king of God's people, to be the Messiah, to be everything that is prophesied about him in the Old Testament. He is fully God and fully man. And because he's fully God, he has full authority. For by him all things were created. He is over all things. And he is the head of the body, the church, in verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. <coughs> firstborn from the dead. He, he is the first to rise going before us. He died for us, and he was raised for us to show that that his sacrifice was acceptable to God on our behalf. And, and, And as he was raised, we will be raised with him as well. That's what the firstborn, the first fruits means, that, that he has gone before us up to heaven, and we will go with him. We will meet him in the air. He is deity. He is humanity. He has full authority. He is supreme. He is eternal and immutable. Verses 17 to 19. He, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, the, the whole universe. There, there is not a maverick molecule in the whole universe. Um, it's interesting that, that some scientists are, are befuddled by um, atoms and subatomic particles and how they work and how they hold together and and why electrons and protons and neutrons don't just spin off. Because Jesus Christ is holding them together. From the smallest element to to the largest galaxy, He is holding it all together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is eternal. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, as Hebrews 13.8 says. And it not only exalts, this letter not only exalts his deity and humanity, his authority and supremacy, his eternality and immutability, but for our sake, most importantly to us, is his atonement and sufficiency. This letter exalts his atonement. Verse 20, And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That he he reconciles us to the Father. He... he, uh, as it says in, in, in Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He mediates for us. He reconciles us to the Father. He is that bridge. And it's, it's through the blood of His cross, through His atonement, 
And, and, and he not only reconciles sinners to holy God, but he will reconcile the creation. He will redeem all of creation. He, he is a perfect redeemer. And Colossians exalts this, one of his glories. And, and he is sufficient. He is sufficient for our lives, for all that we need. So we study the letter of Colossians because it is scripture, because it is written to believers under assault, because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel, because it exalts the glories of Jesus Christ, and fifth, because it details the scope and nature of ministry. Paul exalts the glories of Jesus Christ and the excellencies of the gospel in this letter because that is the sum and substance of his ministry. So it benefits us to study this letter because that's what we do here in church. That, that's how we live our lives. That, that it, it's, not just, it's not just the pastor and the deacons and, and the church leadership who ministers, but every believer is in a sense a minister. You, you, you've been given gifts to minister to others for the, for the sake of others and for the glory of God. Um, <clears throat> there's this, this concept that, that um, for a long time in Christianity that there was a, a separation between the secular and the sacred. That, um, you know, all you lay people, you know, you have your, your jobs and, and you, you make a living and, and you, you do your thing, but then the ministers... You know, they're, they're pretty special. They're, they're doing something holy that, that's, that's not, you know, secular and base. But we're, we're to do all things to the glory of God. And, and Colossians says that, that, that you're to work unto the Lord. Your, your job, whether you're a carpenter or a plumber or a housewife or um, you do something administrative or a mechanic or a law enforcement officer or or Whatever your job may be, you're to work unto the Lord. And so in doing that, in working unto the Lord, you are in a sense a minister. Because you're showing the people around you that that's your ministry. You're in full-time ministry. But there is a sense that when we talk about ministry, we are talking about the church. And this letter not only talks about the ministry of every Christian and how they're to conduct themselves in the world, in their relationships, in their their work life, in the marketplace, but it talks about the scope and nature of ministry in the church. And ministry is primarily one of prayer and proclamation. Because we can't do anything unless God works. Through us, we, we, we can't cause anybody to be born again. All, all we can do is proclaim the gospel. And, and, and even in proclaiming the gospel, we're, we're not guaranteed anything unless the Lord works, unless the Spirit moves. And, and that's not just in salvation, but that's in sanctification as well. That, that we proclaim the gospel, we preach the word, we, we preach the commands and the precepts, Scripture, but the Spirit has to move. And so that, that's the, the prayer. And, and prayer 
is not only bringing our requests to God that he would move in our lives and, and help us and lead us and provide for us, but prayer draws us to God. It, prayer doesn't necessarily change God. It changes us. It aligns our will to God's will. And, and that's, that's ministry. Prayer proclamation. Ministry is about bringing our request before God, depending upon God and proclaiming God to others. Paul says in chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he goes on and he says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Ministry is not just prayer and proclamation. It involves struggles and suffering. Primarily prayer and proclamation, but ministry is also a stewardship with struggles and suffering. It involves struggles to understand the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, struggling in prayer, because oftentimes we don't feel like praying. Oftentimes when we go to prayer, our mind goes to different places. Oftentimes we just repeat ourselves over and over again. And on one hand, we're not to beat ourselves up about that, because that is normal, that is our flesh. But on the other hand, we're to struggle through that. And we're not to um, stay just repeating those generalities in our prayers, but we're to struggle to press on to pray about specific things, to pray about others, to pray about spiritual things. And not just, um, you know, I need a job and I need a house and I need more money and and. I would really like to have this and really like to go here and have a vacation and all these worldly things. Pray about spiritual things. And yes, God does care about those little things that seem little. Everything, as some preachers say, everything is a little thing to God. He spoke the universe into creation. It's no big deal. So, So we can cast our burdens upon him. But ministry, is a, it's a struggle. It involves struggling. It involves suffering. And it's not just for the church leaders, but it's for you as well. In your job place, in your workplace, in the marketplace. You, you, you have those times where you're trying to walk in a Christ-like manner and trying to do your work um, as unto the Lord to honor Him, and we fail. Has anybody ever been rebuked by an unbeliever at work? I have. That's a bad day. <laughs> we, we fail. And for most of us, we're not the best at our jobs. We're not the very best. Some of them, we should strive to be the best. We should do our work with excellence. But a lot of us, we're not the top employee. And sometimes God puts us in those challenging work environments or an environment out in the world where we have to depend upon Him. And we have to watch our mouths. 
And we have to watch our attitudes and our interactions with others because we are a representative of Christ and we are a minister to others around us because they have problems and someday they will come to us. And we are to minister to them. We are to minister to our employer in how we work. And that involves struggles and sometimes suffering. That we will have to stand up for truth and morals and, you know, as our world becomes more evil and apostate and um, unbelieving and hostile, there may be suffering ahead of us. And, and, and there's going to be times where you're going to have to say, well, I stand up for truth. Well, I stand up for what is right. Well, am I willing to sacrifice my career and my retirement and my, everything that I have coming for me for the sake of Christ, for the sake of what is right? And that's a hard decision, but we have to make those hard decisions. And we make those hard decisions trusting that God will provide. He will provide. And if we lose our job, he'll provide us with another job. Because he provided us with that job. And he will guide us. So so ministry involves struggles. It involves suffering. But ministry is ultimately all about Christ. As Paul said, him we proclaim. That's what it's all about. It's all about Jesus Christ from beginning to end. <clears throat> and that's what we do. And that's what the letter of Colossians shows. We study this letter because it's scripture, because it's written to believers under assault, because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel, because it exalts the glories of Christ, because it details the scope and nature of ministry. Sixthly, because it guides us in the process of sanctification. Sanctification is ultimately what we're dealing with here on earth. When we come to faith, we are justified before God. We are justified because of the blood of Christ. We are um, legally cleared of the penalty of God's law. And we are justified by faith in Christ and in his work. But, but then begins that process of sanctification. And, and some theologians rightly say that there is sanctification before then. As sanctification is, it means a, a setting apart of being made holy. And, and there is a sense that in, in God choosing us and electing us before the foundation of the world that he does set us apart. And that as he justifies us, he is setting us apart, calling us out of the world. But in our Christian lives, we are continually being made holy, continually being set apart in our conduct and in our attitudes and in our actions and our words as the Spirit works within us to convict us of sin, to call us to repent and to confess our sins to walk in holiness, to read the word, to apply the word. We are being sanctified. Colossians lays out this process of sanctification that there is a sense that it's synergistic. That is uh, Philippians uh, 2, in, in Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13, Paul says, that we are to 
work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That we are to do some work, but it is God working within us. And it's interesting here in Colossians, he talks about that, that <clears throat> our focus is, in, is to be on Christ. And, and, and he, he kind of confronts the error of asceticism which, and, and legalism, which we're prone to fall into as we work out our salvation, that sometimes we can focus too much on, on our work and, and, and what we're doing. I'm prideful and legalistic with that. And, and, and create a set of rules and lists and laws and impose that standard on others. And he says in, in, ver, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of a- angels. And drop down to um, verse 20, he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is it as if... You are still alive in the world. Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. But they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There, there is in a sense that, that, that the, the rules and standards that, that we can apply to ourselves, they do and there is some practical benefit to that. But ultimately, it's Christ working in us and through us. And as we focus on Christ and what he has done and, and we, the things we do, we do as an act of worship, that that is how we are sanctified. In chapter 3, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above and not on things that are on earth. That we are to fix our minds on Christ and what he has done and what he is doing in our lives and what he will do. And, and as we live our lives, we're to live our lives as an act of worship. And, and then he does list these commands of, of putting off the old deeds of the flesh and putting on the new self. And so this sanctification, synergistic. It's God working in us and through us. It's us working out our salvation. But sanctification is by, to, through, and for Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not about us. We do play a part. But it's all about Christ. And there's a verse in 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3.18. This is a key verse in your sanctification. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And what he's saying is, and we all with unveiled face, that we were born again, when we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when we were saved, our face was unveiled. We saw the world for what it really was, and we saw ourselves for who we really were, and we 
started to see Christ for who he really is. But then we go on, we behold the glory of God. We, we, we look to him. And as we look to him, we are transformed into his image. There's a concept in sanctification and worship that, that you will become what you worship. You will become like what you behold. It's like that is your goal, that is your object, and you're moving towards it. There's work to be done, but our focus is not on us. It's not on the work we do. It's on Him. And the work we do, we do for Him. And that is how we are sanctified. So we study this book. It behooves us to study because it's scripture, because it's written to believers under assault as we are, because it proclaims the excellencies of the gospel, because it exalts the glories of Jesus Christ, because it details the scope and nature of ministry, because it guides us in the process of sanctification, and, and seventh, because it gives commands for Christian relationships. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we live, husbands and wives and children and parents and masters and slaves. That encompasses just about all our relationships, the, the life we live, how husbands are supposed to um, treat their wives, how wives are supposed to um, treat their husbands, how children are supposed to act towards their parents, how um, Masters and slaves are supposed to treat one another, which we still have master and slave relationships. We, we don't see it as that, but if you work for somebody, it, it is in a sense the same. And he, Paul talks about masters and slaves because that was, that was the basic economical structure in the ancient world. And, and that was the structure for most of human history up until the last 400 years or so. Most people were either in the master or slave category. And there is a sense that, that we are to treat our employers as our master. And if we work unto them in a way which honors Christ, they, they will treat us well. Because as Paul says, we, we have one master in heaven. He's our ultimate master. We have, Paul writes in Romans that, that we are slaves to righteousness. We were slaves to sin, but now in Christ we are slaves to righteousness. To, to do righteousness, to honor our master. And so there's clear commands in this letter about how we are to live our lives as slaves. Because Probably some of you have heard before, everyone has a boss. Everyone has a boss. And sometimes some of you, you, you work, this happens especially in government, but some of you may have worked in a large corporation where there's a huge hierarchy. And sometimes something comes down and the boss is telling you to do something and, and you get the sense that it's not so much his idea or he wants you to do it, but his boss is telling him to do something and... and, and He's under pressure, and so that comes down to you, and everybody has a boss. And even 
president has a boss. Even the rulers of nations have a boss. We, we have a master in heaven. We, have, we all have someone to answer to. We all have someone to submit to. I have a master. And that can be very terrifying at some times because we're accountable. And we're to do our work as obedient slaves. But as I've said before, you know, we were slaves of sin, but in Christ we are now slaves of righteousness. Yet, I'm sure that there may be someone in here who is still a slave of sin. And the call to you is to repent and believe upon the gospel, to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him while he, may, he is near, to seek salvation from your sin, from your slavery to sin, because that's what sin does to you. It, it keeps you in bondage. That's not how we're supposed to live. That's not what we're created for. We're created to be slaves of righteousness, to obey our master. And this is what Colossians exalts. It exalts the master, Jesus Christ, who is the answer for all our questions in life, for all the errors in the church and in the world. He is the answer, the master. So as we go through this series over the coming weeks, may we um, learn more about him. May we study this book and, and see how great of a master we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you not kept us in the dark, but you have let your light shine upon us, the light of your gospel, and have unveiled our face, have shown us our sin, and have, by your spirit, awakened us and called us to repent and to believe upon you, to seek you while you may be, to be born again, to know you. And Lord, if there's someone in here, and I'm sure there is, that does not know you, I pray that you would work in their heart and in their mind and in their soul and that you would bring about repentance and faith, that they may know you, that you may have one more person to proclaim your glories throughout this world and in their generation. In Christ's name I pray, amen.